Our scripture reading is going to take us back at least nine months prior to the first Christmas. It's found in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, <clears throat> and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. <clears throat> how, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you've said. Then the angel left her. I found Christmas to be a time when people exercise their imaginations. Um, sometimes about scripture, we imagine what it must have been like to have been present at Jesus' birth. I mean, the sight of the star or the appearance of the angels, the journey of the Magi. But it's not just the biblical story that fires our imaginations around Christmas, so do the cultural folk tales. You know, we see jolly St. Nick, who is grossly obese by National Institutes of Health Standards, squeezing into a chimney, or we imagine what it'd be like to fly a reindeer-powered sleigh around the earth. Well, this morning I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Maybe it's overworked already, or maybe you're the bah humbug type who never uses your imagination. But either way, I'm going to ask you to use your imagination, not because I want you to make things up, but because I think Einstein was right, imagination is a vital tool in the discovery of truth. I want you to imagine, and I know this is going to seem strange for a Christmas sermon, but you'll get it later, okay? I want you to imagine that you are a sleeper agent for some... Who did, who? <laughs> I didn't even have to ask. I knew before I looked. <clears throat> that you are a sleeper agent for some great power embedded in a foreign land, living like you're one of us common people. Okay, that's the picture. So if you've read spy novels or you've watched science fiction, you know that a, a sleeper agent is a staple of those genres. He or she's a spy who's been positioned in a country or on a planet, in the case of science fiction, with orders to blend in but ready to be called on when needed. When a sleeper agent isn't active in duty, he or she is going to work or watching TV or taking in a ball game or having friends over on Friday nights. In other words, living a normal life. So I want you to imagine you're one of those people. In fiction, you know, sleeper agents never get the big picture. 
when they get called on to perform some action, they usually don't know what it's all about. They're not told how their action's going to contribute to the whole. And what they're called on might even seem trite. You know, go to the 7-Eleven, buy a quart of chocolate milk and leave it on the porch at 99 Elm Street. What does that have to do with anything? How's that gonna win the war? The sleeper agent doesn't know, but his or her job isn't to know, it's to obey, okay? Most of the tension in these stories arises from the fact the agent doesn't know why he or she is being asked to perform some action. They just have to trust that their superiors know what they're doing and are making the right call. Now, the reason I ask you to imagine this, you're a sleeper agent, you're embedded here. Not you. (laughs) I don't want to say bed and you in a sermon all at the same time. That's not a good mix. I think our position is analogous to that. We go to work, we watch TV, we take in a ball game, we have friends over on Friday night, and yet we, if we're committed to Jesus Christ, are operatives in the kingdom of God. We go about our lives just like everyone else, but when we receive orders, we go into action. Those orders may come through the Spirit, by the Scriptures. Maybe our orders are to stop at a nursing home or to send $50 to someone we don't even know, or forgive someone who doesn't deserve it. Most of the time, we can't see how those orders fit into the bigger picture. They might even seem trite, or they might seem like they're too difficult for us to do. Our commander, for example, told us to give to him who asks. Now, how does that fit into our mission? He told us to pray for people who despitefully use us. How does that fit? Most of the time, we can't tell. As St. Paul famously put it, now we see through a glass darkly. Much of the tension we feel comes from not seeing the big picture and not knowing how we fit into it. Is what I'm doing making any difference? A recurring theme in that kind of literature is the surrender of the spy's autonomy. He or she must submit to authority. The field operative takes orders. He doesn't give them. The same thing is true of us as operatives in the kingdom of God. Headquarters sees how everything fits together. We do not. We cannot offer God our service while withholding our surrender. If we reserve the right to countermand his orders whenever we don't understand them or don't like them, we'll be making the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. That kind of attitude has kept many people on the sidelines in the kingdom of God. It makes the gifts and talents that God has supplied for the mission unusable. People whose gifts and talents would have made a real difference have a negligible impact as long as they reserve the right to say no to God. Kingdom operatives don't get to say no. They say Yes. Mary, the mother of Jesus, about whom we just read, is the perfect example of this. She was a teenager when she was activated for duty. Teenager. Talk about being in the dark. She was given her mission, which was potentially hazardous, but told nothing about how it was going to work out. Now, you might be thinking, now wait a minute. We're talking about Christmas. We're talking about the birth of the baby Jesus, not about mission objectives and undercover operatives. 
This isn't a spy novel, right? Well, maybe not, but there's more to the Christmas story than most of us realize. By the way, that's what we're talking about tonight. If we shrink Christmas down to the size that it fits our cultural expectations about it, that Christmas is all about family, for example, or that it's all about celebrating and being merry, we do it and ourselves a grave disservice. For example, the holiday cards and movies often talk about family at Christmas time. It's all about family. So what happens if our family members move away? Or worse, die. What happens to Christmas then? Or our culture thinks that it's all about being married. What happens when we struggle with depression? Does Christmas lose its meaning? Does it cease to be worthwhile? No, Christmas isn't all about us. The meaning of Christmas is not dependent upon our moods. Christmas is more than we realize. At its root, Christmas has always been the story of an invasion. It is one of the great and decisive moments in the battle for humanity. That's what Mary was engaged in when she accepted her mission. Now you realize that when Mary said yes to God, she had no idea how her fiancé Joseph would respond. He could have trashed her reputation. He could have dumped her. He could have done both. And the fact is, he was going to dump her. But he was prevented from doing so because he too was a kingdom operative. And he received, if you know the story from Matthew chapter 1, he received last minute orders to go through with the marriage. Otherwise, he wouldn't have. When Mary accepted her orders, she didn't know that troops would one day surround her village looking for her child. She didn't know that they would carry out a massacre she didn't know that she and Joseph and the baby would be forced to flee the country and live as refugees in Egypt. She didn't know that when she came back years later, she wouldn't be safe in the province where their home had been and that she and her family would have to relocate to the north. Now, all of this came to her as a surprise. Now, we look back at this story and we read it in retrospect. Well, yeah, but Mary had an angel visitor. And I would serve God wholeheartedly too if that happened to me. And, and that's true. She had a divine messenger sent to her while she was in Nazareth. And later she received confirmation from Elizabeth in her hill country safe house. The shepherds authenticated the story. The Magi two years later came. All of that must have been a great help to her faith. But put yourself in her sandals. Mary was threatened with the loss of her reputation and her fiancé. She was forced to flee her home and even her country. Then began, as far as we know, as far as the scriptures tell us, years of silence without directives. Years. Was she doing the right thing? Was there more she ought to be doing? She must have longed for certainty, longed to place her life and the life of her son on some clear grid and lay it all out so she could see how it was going to work. If she was like us, Mary was hungry for information. She wanted a plan. She wanted an airtight plan. But airtight plans are not in our mission parameters. That's not how it works. That's not how faith works. Faith is only possible 
in an environment where doubt is possible. And in this world, on our mission, doubt is almost always possible. But that's not all bad, right? Let me illustrate for you. What if I told you that I have up here on the pulpit a $10 bill, which I'm going to give to someone during this sermon? Would you believe me? Okay. Would you have faith? Let's try it. I have a $10 bill up here on the pulpit this morning. If you believe me, if you have faith that I'll give it to you, no strings attached, would you raise your hand? Let me see your hand. Okay. The reporter over here, Rollins Stoy, you believe me? Then come up here. Let's put your faith on the line here. I promise you a $10 bill. Come on up. I promised you a $10 bill. Now I'm going to take away your faith. Now I'm going to take away your faith. I'm going to give you the $10 bill. Okay, you can go back and sit down. I just took away his faith. Did you realize that? I took away his faith by giving him the $10 bill. The moment he took that bill into his hands, faith became impossible. You, you can't have faith because you have the thing and there's no longer any room for doubt. Faith only operates where there's room for doubt. Now here's the thing, in our lives, in Mary's life, there's always room for doubt. Doubt about ourselves. Think about Mary. Doubt about herself, about Joseph, about how things were going to turn out. Think about the uncertainty she endured when her son, having grown into a man, faced death threats, repeated attempts on his life. And think what she went through when the disciples sent word that he'd been arrested. She must have thought that something had gone wrong with the plan. She must have been filled with doubts. And then the ultimate disaster, his crucifixion. How did that fit? The angel never said anything about that. And yeah, it's true, old Simeon had warned her that a sword would pierce her own soul too. But couldn't he have been clearer than that? Why was there no advance warning? No time to take countermeasures? Now look, by comparing our situation to Mary's, I don't mean to suggest that they're equivalent. What Mary went through is unique. Yet her life provides us an example of what happens when people say yes to service in the kingdom of God. She reminds us that we're on a mission. That things will not always go the way we want and will usually not go the way we expect. And that even when that's true, we have no right to countermand God's orders. Mary reminds us, we don't have the whole picture. And what we see in Mary's life, we see played out again and, the, and again in the lives of other kingdom operatives. Abraham, who received orders while he was in Chaldea and went out, as the King James Version puts it, not knowing whither he went. Or David, he received his orders from Samuel, and then years went by while he had to wait before his orders were actionable. 
He must have suffered through uncertainty. When is this going to happen? Well, I know when it's supposed to happen. What about the Apostle Paul? He told his support network in Ephesus, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. See, that's the way it is for people like us. These people in the scriptures were all involved in something much bigger than themselves. But you know what? So are we. They often wrestled with uncertainty, but so do we. We think, oh, that's me. It's my faith is weak. No, that's the nature of the reality. They began their service when they said yes to God, surrendered their rights and obeyed, and so do we. Abraham said yes, and he headed to the place God would tell him about to a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Paul said yes, and he headed the place God told him about, to a cold and dreary prison. Mary said yes and offered herself as a servant to the God who was above her, and yet somehow beyond her capability of understanding was within her. What we call the Christmas story is a mission. One mission, albeit a crucial one, in a larger operation, the one that we're all involved in. We might call it Operation Restoration. See, God's mission to rescue humanity and restore creation, rooting out evil and injustice forever. None of the operatives in the Christmas story, think about it, Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, the shepherds, the magi, not even the angel, as Peter tells us in his first letter, had been fully read into the mission. They only knew their own roles. And none of the operatives in the larger operation, and that includes us, are fully read into the mission either. We can try to figure it all out, or we can follow orders. We can insist on having veto power, or we can say with Mary, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. At this time of the year, people frequently talk about getting into the Christmas spirit. I've talked about that too. Come tonight, get into the Christmas spirit. And usually by that we mean that we're talking about cheerfulness. But the real spirit of Christmas is not one of cheer. It's not one of sentimentality. It's the spirit of the kingdom operative, the spirit of a Mary who says, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. That's how she responded when she got her orders. Even though she didn't know where the baby was going to be born or if she would have a husband to help take care of him. She didn't know where her family would live or how they would make money. She didn't know that she would have to leave her friends and community suddenly, along with most of her worldly possessions, to resettle in a foreign country among people she didn't know, speaking a language she didn't understand. She didn't know how her life would be turned upside down by the threats against her son. She could not possibly understand what awaited her, the sword that would pierce her own soul too. She had lots of questions. She did not have lots of answers, but she did have orders. And she said yes. That's what kingdom operatives do. 
despised like us? Jesus' people serving God's kingdom in a world that doesn't acknowledge his authority or his right to rule? Spies like us have lots of questions. We will frequently not have lots of answers. But we do have orders. On this Christmas Eve morning, I want to remind you that Mary, great among kingdom operatives, was nevertheless like us. She couldn't see what tomorrow would bring. There was plenty to fear, trouble all around, a long list of reasons to decline her mission. She was like us, but she didn't decline her mission. She did not let fear countermand her orders. She said yes. She was like us. Let's be like her. Let's say yes to God. I'm going to close with a prayer from a well-known Christian mystic that seems to me to be a prayer that Mary herself could have prayed. Probably in her own words, she did. It's also a prayer that you and I can pray. A prayer to the one who reveals himself to us as Emmanuel. God with us. My Lord, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I can't know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I'll never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road. Though I may know nothing about it, Therefore, I will trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me. And you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Can you make that your prayer this morning? Let's talk to the Lord now. Lord, I said, you've given us orders, and that's true of those of us who have faith in Jesus. If some of us are here today and we haven't come over to your side yet, would, would you speak to us? Would you call us? Make us your own. And Lord, those of us who are yours, I know that some of us are facing tremendous uncertainty. We're not sure what's next. Grant us a spirit like Mary's. A Christmas spirit that says yes to you. We ask for this grace in the name of our King.
our leader, Jesus. Amen.